a horrible night for the Democratic establishment and a horrible night for the Republican establishment. Well, they had it coming. Oh, they're everywhere. From Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles, this is your broadcast, as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in L.A., on 98.7 FM in Santa Barbara, 93.7 FM San Diego, and 99.5 FM in Ridgecrest and China Lake. Up in Oregon on 91.7 FM KYAQ on the Central Coast and 106.7 FM Queso in Cottage Grove. Out in Pennsylvania on 93 FM WLRI in Lancaster. Out in Hawaii on 88.5 FM KAKU, the voice of Maui. Up in Minneapolis, St. Paul on AM 950 KTNF, the progressive voice of Minnesota. And of course, coast to coast and around the globe, streaming on the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Indie Media Weekly, FYI Nation, Radio or Not, Radio Free Brooklyn, GDPR Nashville, and Radio Sputnik. Five days a week, you can run, but you can't hide from the broadcast. I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, an all-around sleep-deprived swell fellow from bradblog.com. Thank you for joining us for what is, no doubt, another thrilling, action-packed adventure. We are joined, as ever, by our producer, Desi Doyen. How hey, are you? <clears throat> I'm tired and sleep-deprived myself. I, know, I can't I know. even talk. We'll barely make it through. <laughs> Don't worry. Uh, coming up, maybe uh, maybe this guy will help us. A short, if merciful, break from presidential politics. Yay! I will be joined by uh, my guest today to discuss a big win for Satan in Phoenix, Arizona. Yes, really, and uh, some more goodish news uh, of a sort concerning congressional redistricting in at least one key swing state. But first, before we get to all of that. Yes, it was a huge night in New Hampshire on Tuesday with rather extraordinary victories on both the Republican and Democratic sides of the ledger for both Bernie Sanders and, yes, for Donald Trump in the Granite State. Once again, more evidence that the corporate media, though they pretend to, have actually no idea what the hell is going on in this country and certainly in this race. The uh, the mainstream corporate media conventional wisdom has from the jump been that Donald Trump, he's not for real. Uh, since the Iowa mess, it's been, uh, and even before then, that Marco Rubio is likely to be the establishment's alternative candidate. And, of course, that Bernie Sanders could not possibly beat Hillary Clinton anywhere much less uh, in New Hampshire for the primary uh, nomination, etc. So as it turns out, that conventional wisdom, that corporate media, 
those folks are always wrong. And they were, once again, proven wrong in New Hampshire on Tuesday night. All right, by now you've, you've heard the numbers, but we'll run through them quickly. The, uh, the raw reported, and I will add, largely unverified results in New Hampshire, now with 100% of the precincts uh, said to be reporting. On the Republican side, Donald Trump crushed it. Absolutely crushed it. 35% of the vote. His next closest competitor was John Kasich, someone who I've been talking about for a while here, uh, felt that he would have a a very good chance to become the establishment alternative. And if the numbers hold up in, uh, in New Hampshire, that could well come to pass. Never really seemed like it was going to be Marco Rubio, did it? So Trump at 35, Kasich with 16 Then you have Ted Cruz with 12 percent, Jeb Bush with 11 percent and Marco Rubio with 11 percent. Below that, all uh, single digits at this point, Chris Christie, who it now looks like will be suspending his campaign. I don't think it's yet official, but it should be any moment. By the time you hear this, I suspect he'll be out. We'll see. Carly Fiorina at 4%. She has indeed announced that she is leaving the race. And good old Ben Carson. I guess he's still staying in. Uh, he's got 2%. He got 2% of the vote reportedly in New Hampshire. on the de- uh, And so for Donald Trump, that was a 19-point margin. 19 points over his nearest competitor. That is, as Donald Trump would say... Huge. And uh, I think the largest uh, victory uh, margin since John McCain also won by 19 points way back in 2000. So huge victory for Donald Trump on the Democratic side. Even huger. Yes. Uh, Bernie Sanders takes 60 percent of the vote to Hillary Clinton's 38 percent. That, as good as Donald Trump's 19-point margin was, Bernie Sanders, again, if these numbers don't change, and they could, but if they don't change, a 22-point margin over Hillary Clinton. Amazing. Now, as I've noted, as uh, discussed in detail on yesterday's broadcast, in fact, and in the many days prior to New Hampshire, to the uh, New Hampshire primary and subsequent to the Iowa caucus mess, and frankly, long before both of them, as I've noted, many of the problems and the concerns and the way that an election is run, problems that people had trying to cast their vote, concerns and questions about the results, they often don't reveal themselves until days and weeks and sometimes long after an election. But uh, the election officials' prayer, which you may know as, uh, please, God, don't let it be a close election, that may well have come to pass last night so far with these huge margins at the top of each of the uh, uh, at the top, at least of the, each of the races. And even among the trailing candidates, in large part, the margins are, are fairly large. Um, you know, for what it's worth, uh, there are a few thousand separating uh, uh, third and fourth place Cruz and Bush a little bit tighter still. Between uh, a fourth and fifth place, Marco Rubio, who is just uh, plummeting like a stone since his disastrous debate defo- uh, performance on Saturday. 
Uh, they're a little bit closer. They could, uh, Jeb or Marco, try to uh, challenge the results if they want, go through the process, the expensive and difficult process of seeking a, uh, a recount of those numbers. Last time we had a recount in New Hampshire back in 2008, we found uh, hundreds of votes miscounted all over the place. question is what difference... Would it ultimately make to their campaigns right now? Donald Trump gets 10 uh, delegates out of the New Hampshire primary as it stands right now. Kasich gets four and then Cruz, Bush and Rubio each get three. So even if they sort of move around down there uh, among those numbers, it's not going to change their delegate count ultimately. Um but I'm happy to say, I really am really happy to say uh, that I have received and or found so far surprisingly few complaints and concerns and worries about the results uh, or tips about problems, etc. There were some reported problems with polling access and the misuse of the state's new ID requirements in New Hampshire. I'll try to get to some of that in a bit if I can, if we've got time today. Um, but we're learning more about that as we move forward in any event. Uh, beyond that, for the moment, I'm happy to say so far, very few reported problems. We will see if that holds. And yes, I hope it does, because I could use a breather before we get to places like South Carolina. Oi! Uh, I won't even get into that right now uh, into South Carolina. We'll discuss that in the coming days, no doubt. But for now, these uh, very big, very impressive numbers is what we have. Uh, the exit polls, really, uh, I think may tell a an even bigger story in regard to the New Hampshire results than the results themselves, particularly on the Democratic side. As the New York Times summarizes, and this is just breathtaking. Bernie Sanders wins virtually every demographic group, according to the exit polls. Senator Bernie Sanders beat this is from The New York Times. Senator Bernie Sanders beat Hillary Clinton among nearly every demographic group in the Democratic New Hampshire primary. According to exit polls, he carried majorities of both men and women. He won among those with and without a college degree. He won among gun owners and non-gun owners. Uh, he beat Mrs. Clinton among previous primary voters and among those participating for the first time. And he ran ahead among both moderates and liberals. Even so, they add, there were a few silver linings for Mrs. Clinton while... Uh, uh, Mr. Sanders bested her among all age groups younger than 45. The two candidates polled evenly among voters aged 45 to 64. So they're tied there. And Clinton won the support of voters who are 65 and older. And while she lost nearly every income group, Hillary Clinton did, uh, among every income group, she carried voters in families who were earning more than $200,000 per year. Other than that, she was crushed in just about every demographic. And if you drill down into those exit poll uh, uh, data, the difference is even more stark. Among overall uh, Democratic voters aged 18 to 34, Sanders won 87 percent to Clinton's 12 percent. 87 to 12 among voters 18 to 34. In other words, 
Democratic millennial voters in New Hampshire went 9-1 to in favor of Bernie Sanders. Women Democratic voters aged 18-29. to Sanders again wins 82% to Clinton's 18% among women voters. He just crushed her. Overall, now this is interesting because overall the Demo- among Democrats... Sanders and Clinton were pretty much tied uh, 49 to 49%. But among the undeclared and the independent voters, once again, Sanders crushed it 72 to 27%. Yeah, that's huge. And and also, uh, you know, well, begs the question that uh, uh, the electability question that everybody has been putting forward for the last uh, few weeks that Hillary Clinton is somehow more electable than Bernie Sanders. And it is true. They have not yet thrown the kitchen sink at Bernie Sanders, as I suspect they will. But the idea that he is pulling off uh, people who are not declared to be Democrats or Republicans who declare themselves as independents, that he has uh, pulled off so many of them, at least in the Democratic primary in New Hampshire last night, is kind of amazing. 72 to 27. So then you're basically saying that if if the independent vote that came out to vote for Bernie Sanders in New Hampshire is an indication of the general electorate, then Bernie Sanders might attract independent, including, you know, former Republican voters as well. That's the suggestion, right? Well, listen, yeah, these elections are won. These these elections are won. The general elections are won uh, largely by, as they say, people in the middle, the independent voters. And uh, clearly, if these numbers are in any way accurate, Sanders is pulling in a lot more people, at least in New Hampshire, in any event, who identify themselves as independent voters. Also add to that, this comes from uh, David Axelrod, uh, uh, Obama's uh, campaign guy, um, who I think is in the tank for Hillary, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, In any case, he tweets out what he describes as a stunning data point that Bernie Sanders won handily among New Hampshire liberals, not surprisingly, but he also won among moderates. So this notion that you know Bernie is some you know far left radical that only the left wing fringe of the Democratic Party could possibly support does not seem to be supported by the numbers that we have that we have been getting that we now have at least from New Hampshire that we've seen elsewhere. Yes, these numbers are still limited, and yes, the uh, mainstream media is so horrible. They've been doing uh, you know many of them have only been polling head to head general election races. Uh, you know, Hillary Clinton versus Donald Trump, Hillary Clinton versus Jeb Bush, you know, only against Hillary Clinton. They haven't been including Bernie Sanders in many of those polls. We'll see if they begin to do so now. Um, in the few polls where they have, Sanders' uh, margin of uh, victory over Clinton has been, I'm sorry, over, over all of the Republicans in general has been about twice that as Clinton's. So I suspect we'll see more of that data as we move forward, of course, in his victory speech. Uh, And again, (laughs) an impressive victory speech. I don't think we're going to have time uh, to play. It was a 25 minute speech. If we have some uh, uh, time, uh, perhaps later in the week, we'll get to it because it was quite impressive. It was tight. It was focused. The message of his campaign was very, very clear. And it seems to me that's where Hillary Clinton is suffering. She's for a lot of things that a lot of Democrats would like, but it's not necessarily the coherent message 
that Bernie Sanders is talking about, about reforming our political system and our economic system and how those two are intertwined and must be reformed, along with things uh, like $15 minimum wage, Medicare for all, stopping climate change, breaking up the banks, um, you know, all of that, all of those things that he stands for are built into his campaign message. They're not just various things. He's in favor of that. He's in favor of this. It is a coherent message. And a big vision, it seems to and, me. And you may or may not like it, but it's coherent. Uh, we know what he stands for. We know what he wants. Uh, and we know why he wants it. And that is key. Uh, when it comes to um, superdelegates, however... Uh, while um, while Sanders absolutely crushed her in the raw voting numbers, superdelegates, and actually I should say also in just the, the delegates, he, he crushed her. What were the numbers here? He won from the, uh, Bernie Sanders won 15 of the available delegates. Clinton only won nine. However, when it comes to superdelegates, uh, Clinton is likely to leave New Hampshire with the same number of delegates overall as Sanders because she had locked up a lot of these uh, so-called superdelegates. These are these unpledged uh, delegates that they don't vote on, but are rather, uh, you know, VIPs within the party, elected officials and so forth. While two of the state's 24 delegates are currently unpledged, they will likely be uh, awarded to Sanders once the results are finalized. Um, but Clinton won, so she won nine of the delegates, uh, but she has the support of six super delegates, and that puts her up at uh, the same 15 delegates. So they may both leave with uh, 15 delegates after all of this is said and done, if you include those super delegates, although I should note those super delegates can change their mind. They are not locked in uh, to, to who they need to support. So if things keep moving in Bernie Sanders' direction... Well, we will see what happens there. All right, very quickly, uh, because I got to get to my guest here, but I need to get uh, to the Republican side. Of course, Donald Trump also absolutely crushed uh, his opponents, as I said. And the exit polls also show us that he crushed uh, his Republican opponents in a similar way that Bernie Sanders did in almost every demographic. This comes from uh, Vox looking at the exit polls. Trump uh, who won New Hampshire with 35% of the vote, carried nearly every demographic group with double digits. He won older voters and younger voters. He won people who care about the, quote-unquote, the issues, 37% to 13%, and people who care about leadership, 31% to 20%. Trump won rich voters, poor voters, conservative voters, moderate voters. He won evangelical Christians, which was thought to be Cruz's base. But he won there. Trump won there. He won voters with a college degree who had voted for Marco Rubio in Iowa, not so in New Hampshire. He won the voters who made up their minds on Tuesday, and he won those who made up their minds months in advance. In most cases, when Trump won, he won by a huge margin. Ohio Governor John Kasich, who plays second, he ran double digits behind Trump with most of the same demographic group. The exceptions were moderates, where Trump still beat John Kasich, just not by double digits. Uh, beat John Kasich 32 to 28. 
And uh, so just on down the line, the only place where Trump did not win, uh, did not win among uh, uh, in the demographic where he did not win, I should say, is among those who believe that uh, uh, the U.S. should temporarily ban Muslims. Nearly two thirds of U.S. New Hampshire. I'm sorry. Nearly two-thirds of New Hampshire voters agree the U.S. should temporarily ban Muslims who are not American citizens from entering the country. So those all went, actually, for Trump. Actually, among the 32% who did not want a ban on Muslims, Trump came in third place behind Kasich and uh, Florida Governor Jeb Bush. Uh, So that was it. Other than that, it was uh, it was Trump's night, no question about it. We're going to be talking in the days ahead. I am quite certain uh, about John Kasich and uh, the idea that he is somehow a moderate in the uh, uh, you know the establishment alternative, and that somehow he is a moderate guy. His record in Ohio uh, is really anything but moderate. But this is what Fox News has done to their own electorate. Fox News. And uh, and talk radio. And they have taken a guy like uh, uh, John Kasich, who, frankly, is a very conservative all across the board. And because he had the temerity to do stuff like, oh, expand Medicaid under Obamacare, this somehow makes him not a conservative in the Fox News talk radio uh, uh, mindset. So instead of going for someone like John Kasich, who probably could do fairly well in a general election, uh, they don't. Uh, the folks on the right, the the base voters who have been brainwashed for over a decade now by Fox News and certainly by talk radio, they don't re- view him as conservative, even though he is. That is where the battle, I think, is going to be on the Republican side as they continue to find someone that they consider, that the establishment considers electable. And at the same time, I will con- uh, c- keep saying that, yes, Donald Trump is completely electable. Finally, I know, got to get to a break. We're running late. Uh, I mentioned that uh, Carly Fiorina has now suspended her race. Chris Christie is expected to. Uh, Here was uh, Chris Christie uh, last night uh, after the results came in in New Hampshire. What do I get? A one-way ticket to Palookaville. I could have been a contender instead of a bum, which is what I am. Let's face it. (laughs) He could have been a contender. Back in 2012, he should have run. He actually could have uh, given Barack Obama, I think, a hell of a fight back then. But Chris Christie is done. Goodbye. Okay. A very quick break here and a quick breath. And at least uh, momentarily, we will move away from presidential politics and last night's winners and losers in New Hampshire to discuss someone who won big last week in Phoenix, Arizona. Could it be... Why, yes, it could. And that story is next with constitutional law expert Ian Milheiser. I'm Brad Friedman. This is your Bradcast. Hey, it's Brad. The 2016 election season is now at full throttle. And while the Bradcast and Bradblog.com fight for election integrity all year around like no other media outlet in the nation, we need your support to keep doing so now more than ever. 
please stop by bradblog.com slash donate to make a monthly pledge of any amount you like to help keep us going, or even just a one-time-only contribution. While everyone else covers the horse race, we also keep our eyes on the track conditions that those horses are running on, because voting systems, access to the polls, and citizen oversight of election results can make all the difference. Please, Help us continue to fight independently for your democracy by taking about 60 seconds to stop by bradblog.com slash donate right now. And thanks. All right, welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. I had been uh, hoping to have my uh, next guest on as a... Welcome, if brief, respite from electoral politics. But uh, now a second story has come out that puts us right back into the electoral politics realm. But we'll do the first one first and we'll uh, use it as a as a brief break from all the hell that has been breaking loose over the past several days, weeks, months, whatever you want to call it. Uh, This uh, this story, (laughs) this story takes place in Phoenix, Arizona which will no longer begin its city council meetings with a prayer. Well, that's good. The move in Phoenix, Arizona, comes on the heels of a 2014 Supreme Court decision that, ironically enough, was widely viewed as a huge blow to the separation of church and state when it was handed down. That 2014 decision, uh, as Ian Milheiser describes at Think Progress, is the town of Greece versus Galloway. It involved a town in upstate New York that invited local clergy to open its board meetings with an invocation. With a few exception, uh, exceptions, these prayers were delivered by Christian ministers. You'll be shocked to learn, and many of them had overtly Christian themes. Nonetheless, a bare majority of the justices on the Supreme Court concluded that this arrangement did not violate the Constitution. Justice Anthony Kennedy, writing for the majority, said that nearly all of the congregations in town turned out to be Christian does not reflect an aversion or bias on the part of town leaders against minority faiths. He wrote that so long as the town maintains a policy of non-discrimination, the Constitution does not require it to search beyond its borders for non-Christian prayer givers in an effort to achieve religious balancing. So, in other words, there was, I guess, uh, only Christians in town. So it was not unusual that only Christians were leading this invocation. That was up in New York. That was decided back in 2014, and that has been uh, largely the law of the land, perhaps— until now. Joining us to discuss the until now part is Ian Milheiser. He's a constitutional law expert, senior fellow at the Center for American Progress and the and the editor of Think Progress Justice. His writings have appeared in the New York Times, the L.A. Times, Slate, Guardian, American Prospect, and everywhere else. His first book, published just last year, is Injustices, the Supreme Court's History of Comforting the Comfortable and Afflicting the Afflicted. Ian Milheiser, welcome back to the broadcast, sir. It's great to be back. How are you? I'm doing okay. Last couple of times we talked to you, you had a cold both times, so I'm hoping that is now behind you. Feeling better? I, uh, I am feeling a lot better. Um, hopefully, uh, you know, just a little bit of stuffiness to get over, and then I'll be done with it. Okay, good. Uh, for a while, I thought I was making you sick. 
every time you uh, came on the show. So, all right, uh, in uh, in Phoenix, Arizona, where they had been following this uh, this this Supreme Court ruling out of New York, uh, all of a sudden. They have changed their mind, and I guess we could say the devil made them do it. Uh, I will let you, Ian, uh, explain what happened and why Phoenix will no longer begin its own city council meetings with a prayer. Yeah, finally Satan gets a break in the United States. You never would have guessed it. <laughs> right. Um, this, this, is, yeah, this is a case involving actual Satanists, and, and I should, like preface this by saying that these Satanists, they're not actually devil worshippers. It's sort of a satirical church, and uh, they use Satan as a metaphor for rebellion, so they don't actually worship the devil. But what they do believe is they believe that there shouldn't be these public displays of Christianity um, at city council meetings. And so the, the Satanic Temple, as they call themselves, has developed all of these clever ways of trolling um, governments that want to engage in some sort of public display of Christianity. Uh Um, The reason they're able to do this is because the Supreme Court said in this Town of Greece case that, you know, especially in in this legislative setting, Mm -hmm. um, legislatures have a ton of freedom to begin their sessions with their prayer if they want. The one rule, though, is they can't discriminate. They can't say that, okay, this religion gets to go, but not this religion. Right. So the Satanists show up, and they say, okay, we'd like to offer a prayer to Satan. <laughs> and then the uh, all of a sudden, the legislature has a choice. They can either stop say, doing prayers altogether, right. or they can try to discriminate, and if they try to discriminate, they wind up running about the Supreme Court decision. So now this satanic temple, you describe it as uh, somewhat satirical, but in fact they are a legally recognized, uh, a legally recognized church. In fact, yeah, I mean, well, there isn't a government agency that approves churches. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, in fact, the courts are very, very reluctant. Um, and for good reason to say, like, what's a real religious belief and what's a fake religious belief, because, you know, the Constitution says that the go- it's not the government's job to tell you what your religion is. That's the Establishment Clause of the, co- of, of the Constitution. Mm-hmm. So these folks come along, and they have, you know, a, a series of beliefs that, like, deal with placing rationality ahead of uh, superstition and stuff like that. Um, they call themselves the Satanic Temple. And, you know, what they've been doing is they've been going around, you know, in this case it was the legislature that offers prayers. Mm -hmm. There are various places that around Christmas time want to display a crash in the city hall or the state house. And they'll say, fine, you can display the crash, but we want to display a monument to Satan, too. Right. Um, Yeah, or or like, you know, my, my favorite trick that they pulled, um, and if you go to Think Progress, I have a picture of, uh, of this book, Right, is there was a public school that allowed a Christian group to come and p- distribute Bibles to the students. Right. And the Satanic Temple showed up and said, okay, that's fine, but if you want to do that, you have to let us distribute the Satanic Children's Big Book of Activities, is what they called <laughs> yes. it. It's an actual coloring book that teaches children about Satanism. Um, so, you know, these are these are clever <laughs> folks, and, like, what they're doing is, like, 
they're, they're kind of prankish, but they're very serious pranks because they take advantage of the Supreme Court case uh-huh. that, um, that puts a lot of these institutions in a bind. And, 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 and they've been effective. I mean, they were able to shut down the distribution of the Bibles uh, to, to Florida school children because of the big book of the satanic children's big book of activities. You also note, uh, as you mentioned, in 2014, uh, also down in Florida, oh boy, they love trolling Florida, don't they? Uh, yeah. Where, where they had they put up a, uh, they allowed the temple to put up a display celebrating the fall of the angel Lucifer, and it proclaimed "Happy Holidays from the Satanic Temple." Yep. So this, yeah, I mean, yeah. these, it's a really clever trolling operation. I mean, these guys are smart. They, you know, they've got the law on their side. Now, you know, the bad news is that if I was a lawyer arguing a case like this in front of the Supreme Court, mm-hmm. I do not want my client to be the satanic temple. You know, I, 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 don't, I don't want to go into the Supreme Court and say, Mr. Chief Justice, right. may have pleased the court, I represent the devil. Like, that, that's, <laughs> that's not going to get you five votes in this Supreme Court. Well, you and, know, and so, I wouldn't be so sure, uh, Ian. Remember the uh, remember that case where those high school kids uh, what was it bong bong hits for Jesus? Uh, that yeah, went... and and the kids lost that case. Did they lose? The, 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 yeah, it was five to four. The Supreme Court said you can't say bong hits for Jesus if you're a school kid. That's right. It was a freedom uh, of speech. Know. It was a freedom of speech case, and they and they had a big sign, and, and they and I guess the principal told him you can't say this, and they went all the way to the Supreme Court. I mean, the case. Did go all the way to the to the court and what was heard before the court. So maybe the uh, the court will welcome the uh, the satanic uh, temple worshippers. Why not? It could happen, Ian. Yeah. Well, I mean, what, what I think is going on here is that you know, the Supreme Court, the five conservatives on the court, have wanted to shut down a lot of the wall that separates church and state mm-hmm. for a really long time. And when, when Town of Greece was handed down, which is the case that the that the Satanic Temples were lying on, you know, I thought it was a devastating blow for the separation of church and state. A lot of people felt that way. Mm-hmm. And then as it turns out, like, there's this line about non-discrimination that the, that the Satanic Temple has found a way you know, to hack the ruling and use it in order to keep church and state separated. Um, the question when this reaches the Supreme Court, if it does reach the Supreme Court, is whether the justices really meant it when they put that line about non-discrimination in there, or whether they're going to say, no, no, what we're really about here is we want to make sure that people can say Christian prayers and not satanic prayers. We, maybe you can jog my memory on this, Ian, but didn't we have something similar, I want to say, in Indiana, uh, when there was a, a marijuana, a church of marijuana or something like that uh, that was that was created uh, to test that state's uh, separation between uh, uh, church and state. Is this ringing a bell yeah, to yeah, there's a lawsuit. There's a lawsuit. I don't think it's, it's gone anywhere, but like since Hobby Lobby, you mm-hmm. know, Hobby Lobby, of course, was the decision which said that employers who object to uh, following the law mm-hmm. have like much broader have much broader rights to ignore the law than we thought they did before Hobby Lobby. And so there have been a number of attempts to sort of see if that ruling can be hacked. And as you recall, one of them was this Church of Marijuana, right. which said that, well, you know, we believe it's an affront to our religious liberty if we can't get high. 
Um, now, I don't think that lawsuit went anywhere. I haven't checked up on it recently. Mm-hmm. So, it, you know, it's probably still kicking around in the lower courts if it is going anywhere. Um, but, yeah, I mean, there is, you, you know, the, the rule for a long time was that courts are largely supposed to stay out of religion, and they're not supposed to um, give favors to, um, they're not supposed to give favors to particular faiths, and they certainly aren't supposed to allow third parties to lose their rights and have their rights diminished because someone else is asserting their religious belief. And as the Roberts Court has started to tear down those walls that have existed for a really long time, what we're finding out is it creates all sorts of weirdnesses in the law, and so the Satanic Temple or the Church of, of Marijuana or whatever are trying to see how far they 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 can take these loopholes. And and before we move on to the next story uh, here with you, Ian Milheiser, uh, why are why is the Roberts Court? Why do conservatives on the Supreme Court want to strike down this wall? that has uh, served us so well, it seems, for so many years, the wall between church and state. What, what's in it for question. that? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's a good question. I mean, that's how Justice O'Connor, that's the question Justice O'Connor asked shortly before she left the court, is, mm-hmm. you know, why would we take a system that uh, has served us so well and replace it with one that has served other countries so poorly? Right. Um, you know, I, I honestly don't know why it is that you, you know, the, the, the five conservatives are hostile to the notion of separating church and state. But when you read their opinion, you know, Justice Kennedy has railed about how he feels like long-standing law uh, dealing with the separation of church and state is hostile to faith. You know, I, I think that it has always been the case that people in the majority sometimes lack understanding of what it's like to not be in the majority. Mm. And so you have five justices who don't really understand how alienating it can be to go around and have your country be yelling at you that this other faith is the one that counts and not you. Right. Um, but, but for whatever reason, you know, there are five votes that I think very much want to rework the equation um, in a way that would give you know, significantly more power to, you know, not just a majority, to majority faith in the establishment clause context, but in the case of cases like Hobby Lobby, would allow people with, like, idiosyncratic conservative religious beliefs potentially to ignore the law. Well, uh, I, I, I thank you, Ian Milheiser, for keeping your eye on this story as it moves forward and uh, on these satanic uh, uh, temple folks. Maybe we need to get them on this show. But in any event, uh, for now at least, until uh, a, another case comes up or until this one somehow moves forward, the Phoenix, Arizona City Council has folded to Satan. They voted five to four uh, about a week ago, to abandon their practice of opening sessions with a prayer, rather than offer the uh, Satanic Temple the opportunity to uh, to offer one at the opening of a session, instead now sessions will begin with a quote moment of silence. I like that. Uh, okay, I'm speaking with Ian Melheiser of ThinkProgress.org, constitutional law expert. Okay. And Melheiser, uh, to perhaps more, uh, I don't know, I was going to say perhaps more disturbing news, uh, or I think good news in one part, uh, in North Carolina. 
Now, uh, after the uh, Supreme Court uh, largely gutted the Voting Rights Act back in 2013, uh, North Carolina was one of the first states to rush and put together one of the worst, one of the hugest. I, I've called it uh, the mother of all voter suppression laws at this point in this country. Um, you know, photo ID. They did away with early voting. They did everything that Republicans have been trying to do to suppress the vote. North Carolina did. Uh, but there is more to uh, what North Carolina is trying to do. North Carolina Republicans are trying to do. And that comes to gerrymandering. And now we have a, a, a ruling by a federal court in North Carolina that, in fact, North Carolina gerrymandered, racially gerrymandered two congressional districts back when they uh, uh, drew new map drew new maps back in, uh, what, 2011? That's right. I mean, this, I think, is a small victory, but, but an important one for people who, you know, think elections should allow the voters to decide their representatives and not the other way around. Mm-hmm. Um, so what happened here is that two of the districts in North Carolina, the court said that they, when they drew those lines, they essentially had a racial quota, where they said that there had to be a certain number of, a uh, certain percentage of each district had to be black. Um, and the court said that that's not allowed, that, that's an unconstitutional racial quota. And so they struck down these two districts. And in the process of reworking these districts, it's probably going to be the case that North Carolina is going to have to rework a bunch of other districts, mm-hmm. um, assuming that the decision is upheld on appeal. Um, so the good news for, uh, you know, the, the, the good news for people who don't like gerrymanders, which, you know, certainly includes me, is, is that this gerrymander has been struck down, and there's a good chance that the state's going to have to redraw its maps. Um, the bad news is that, I mean, there's two big pieces of bad news. Mm-hmm. One is that the Supreme Court doesn't allow um, the courts to go after political gerrymanders. So if the lines are drawn in a way to benefit one party or the other, the courts can't do anything about it. They can only touch racial gerrymanders. And so what's likely to happen is that the Republican legislature will just redraw maps that may not be a racial gerrymander, but they're still going to be really beneficial to Republicans. And I, I want to understand, actually, before you get to the next part, I want to sort of understand that element, because it's come up in other yep. cases. It's come up in the, uh, in, in the photo ID restrictions case down in mm-hmm. Texas, where the Republicans have said, Well, uh, yeah, maybe we were trying to keep people from voting, but we weren't trying to keep minorities from voting. We were trying to keep Democrats from voting as if that was okay. So why is it okay uh, to to gerrymander against Democrats or discriminate against Democrats, but not discriminate? uh, Well, why is it wrong to discriminate racially, but not politically? I mean, the, the real answer to that is because five justices say so. Um, I mean, you know, the Constitution has an equal protection clause. Right. And so the equal protection clause, in almost all cases, forbids discrimination on the basis of race. Right. And, you know, and so if a state engages in a racial gerrymander where they're, you know, trying to cram all the black voters into a few districts right. in order to minimize the, the, their voting power, that is unconstitutional. It should be unconstitutional. Courts should strike that down. Um, but... The Constitution also has a First Amendment. It also prohibits discrimination on the basis of viewpoint. So the government's not supposed to be allowed to say, if you're a Democrat, you get this set of rights. If you're a Republican, you get a different set of rights. So basically, you're, set, 
You're, you're saying that basically okay. because you're, you're saying that because the Constitution explicitly says you cannot discriminate on the basis of race, that 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 would be illegal or unconstitutional. That would be stopped. But if if a political party, Republican or Democrat, says yes, we are discriminating, we are purposely drawing this line or making this law in order to keep. Democrats from being able to exercise their right to vote or Republicans or whatever it is that because nothing in the Constitution explicitly says, no, you can't do that, that it is OK to do that. Well, I mean, I, I wouldn't even go that far. I mean, the, the Constitution says that no one shall be denied the equal protection of the laws, and that's the basis of the ban on racial discrimination. It says that no one shall be denied the, um, the freedom of speech. And that's the basis for the ban on viewpoint discrimination. But I think that both of those principles are equally enshrined in the Constitution. The problem is that the Supreme Court, five justices, disagree with me. Um, I mean, for, I mean, I, I, actually, I shouldn't even go that far. Mm -hmm. What the court has said in its political gerrymandering cases is it hasn't even said that political gerrymandering is allowed. It said that federal courts aren't even allowed to look at political gerrymandering cases. So, you know, if you show up in, in federal court, doesn't matter how bad the facts are, doesn't matter what the, uh, the legislature did, what the Supreme Court had said is you're not, you're not even allowed your day in court with a, politi with a political gerrymandering case. That, that, that can't so, even be challenged. That, that's perfectly fine. Right. Political gerrymandering is perfectly fine. So in, in the, then how will, this move, how will this case move forward where you've got this judge in uh, North Carolina saying that two... Uh, 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 congressional districts are unbelievably, and they describe, uh, and you uh, mention it in your report at Think Progress, just how gerrymandered uh, these particular districts are. Uh, if the state wants to then uh, appeal, and I understand that North Carolina has now appealed, uh, can they go in and they can they make the argument on appeal that no, this is not a racial gerrymander, this is a political gerrymander, and therefore it's allowed? Two issues. So the immediate issue is that the it was a three-judge court that decided this case, and the court ordered North Carolina to fix the problem and essentially draw new maps mm -hmm. in two weeks. And I mean, I'll be honest with you, two weeks ain't enough time. Like that, I, I, I think it's likely that the Supreme Court's going to grant a stay, and it probably should grant a stay because it takes a long time. You know, certainly more than two weeks. And, and, why, and why did they do that? It was very unusual for the judge to make them do it that quickly, ordered them to do it in two weeks and basically said, you cannot hold another election with these districts. You must change the maps, which, yeah, even though I think they should change yeah. the map, it seems ridiculously fast. Yeah. Well, I think part of the problem is that there's a primary election coming up. Right. Um, and so the issue, I mean, this is part of the catch-22 that we get in, in these voting rights cases is that the Supreme Court in, like, the last election cycle mm -hmm. began, uh, you know, they, they, I don't know if they said this explicitly, but they've at least suggested that um, courts should not change the rules that elections are run under when you get close to an election. Right. Uh, and, I mean, there's a logic to that. I mean, you don't want to throw, at a, you know, a, a, an existing election into chaos, but, I mean, we just had an election in November, and now, we have a pro now we're in the middle of a primary season, and then we're going to have another election in November. Mm -hmm. And North Carolina, as I recall, actually has 
like off off year elections where sometimes though I mean I, I lived out in North Carolina and there'd be random times where people were supposed to go vote in like April or something mm-hmm. like that. So I mean if the rule is that a court's not allowed to strike down illegal election rules when there's an election coming up, I don't know. I mean maybe there's like one day in the middle of July <laughs> when they're allowed to do it. When there's not um, an election coming right around the right. corner. Yeah that was yeah that was right. one of the problems uh, as you mentioned, back in uh, in 2014, we had all of these last-minute uh, rulings by all of these federal courts con- concerning photo ID restrictions right. and so forth. And down in Texas, for example, you had the, the federal judge down there saying that the Texas photo ID law absolutely violated the Constitution, violated the law, right. it constituted a poll tax, it discriminated against hundreds of thousands of people, and there was no federal ruling uh, disagreeing with her, disagreeing with that judge, and yet the Supreme Court said, yeah, well, it may be unconstitutional, it may be illegal, it may keep hundreds of thousands of people from voting. However, the ruling came just too late to change the rules at the last minute before an election. So that allows these laws that are knowingly illegal, knowingly unconstitutional, to stay in place for elections. They call it the Supreme Court, uh, well, it's been referred to as the Purcell Principle, and it it seems to me, Ian, that it is also allowing some of these uh, folks, some of these Republicans in these cases, to basically run out the clock. They can take forever. They yeah. can ask for an extension, knowing that even if the ruling goes against them, it won't get it won't be applied to the upcoming election. Yeah, I mean, I should caveat what what I just said by pointing out that you know it won't apply the, to the next election, mm-hmm. but it may apply. You know, it, it should still apply to the election that follows that. So it's not like courts are completely impotent, except for the fact that legislatures are smart and they're dynamic, and they're more they can be more dynamic than courts. I, I mean, think about what happened in Jim Crow. What happened in the Jim Crow era was that. You know, the, the state would pass a poll tax. If a poll tax got struck down, they pa- they'd enact a literary uh, a literacy test. Mm-hmm. As the literacy test got 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 struck down, they might come up with another literacy test, or they might use a white primary to keep black people from voting, or they might. And this is an actual thing that states did during right. the Jim Crow era. They might move the location where you have to go mm-hmm. in order to register to vote, and only tell the white people where they moved it to. Which and and that is why Section Five right. of the Supreme uh, of the Voting Rights Act was so important because that was the section that allowed these uh, you know that, that required that these states with a history of uh, of votes right. voter suppression had to get approval first and that was the genius of the Voting Rights Act that the Supreme Court has now completely gutted. Exactly, I, you know the, the problem is that. Unless there's a way to stop these laws from going into effect before they take effect, mm-hmm. then often a state can run several elections under a terrible election law until a court finally notices it and gets around to striking it down. Yep. And then by the time the court has struck that, that law down, they could just put something else in place. Yeah, and that's what um, you you underscore in, yeah. in your article here. You say that, you know, since these maps now... Uh, uh, in question in North Carolina, since those maps were drawn, the state has run two entire congressional elections, has sent four years worth of congressional delegations uh, to Washington based on these gerrymandered maps that were found to be, at least by this uh, three judge federal court panel, were found to be racially gerrymandered. 
That's right. only one reason why we need, uh, uh, well, the Voting Rights Act back, but also uh, to rethink the way we are allowed or states are allowed to uh, to gerrymander their congressional districts. It's getting ridiculous. I mean, you also point out that uh, Mitt Romney received just barely over 50 percent of the popular vote in North Carolina back in 2012. And nonetheless, Republicans ended up winning nine of the state's 13 uh, U.S. House seats under those gerrymandered maps. And I know that North Carolina is not the only uh, uh, state now that has found where the Republicans have uh, racially gerrymandered their maps and they're being ordered by the courts to change them. But, you know, it won't be in time for this upcoming election. That that seems almost for certain. Uh, Ian, I got to yeah, get I mean, out. Yeah, go ahead. Oh, okay. Oh, no, I was just going to say, like, you know, the, the situation that we're in right now is that the legislature can draw whatever maps they want, run a few elections under them. Eventually, the courts might get around to, stri- to, stri- to striking them down. Then they'll draw a new map, and that new map might be unconstitutional as well, but the court, you know, it, it might take a whole other election before the court gets around to, to throwing that map out. Yep. And by that point, we're coming up on the census when they're going to have to redraw the maps again anyway. So, so. You, there is a dynamism yep. that, that that has been shown here, where you know the people who don't want you to vote or don't want your vote to count are just too quick on their feet. Um, and the Supreme Court's been taking away the tools we need in order to um, to deal with. That. Hence the name of Ian Milheiser's book, Injustices, the Supreme Court's History of Comforting the Comfortable and Afflicting the Afflicted. Ian is, of course, a constitutional law expert from uh, the Center for American Progress. He's the editor of Think Progress Justice, which you should read uh, every day at thinkprogress.org. Ian, always great to talk to you, and uh, I suspect we will be doing again soon. All right. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you, my friend. Okay, quick break. Yeah, I know, running late. I'm Brad Friedman. This is your Bradcast. Stay tuned. Bradcast, as we uh, try to, uh, how's that saying go, Desi Doyne, put 10 pounds of potatoes? <laughs> 10 pounds of show into a one pound bag. There you go. Uh, and uh, we can never fit it into that bag. So I'm going to have to hold off some of these things I had hoped to get to uh, concerning some problems at the polls in New Hampshire yesterday with the new uh, student ID. I'm sorry, with the new uh, photo ID, particularly students who were having trouble uh, and uh, and say that they were illegally turned away from the polls in uh, in New Hampshire and uh, and a new study uh, finding that yes in fact photo ID restriction laws do dampen turnout for both minorities and for liberals and as we were talking uh, about with Ian just there it, which is is a really interesting point to me actually the idea that you're not allowed to racially discriminate at the polls and in these election laws and in gerrymandering and in gerrymandering right but you can do so uh, for partisan reasons and that is that is exactly what texas has gone to to court with to, to great lengths to, to to defend well they're going to great lengths to defend it and their but their argument is 
this has nothing to do with, uh, you know, trying to keep out minorities and uh, Hispanics down in Texas, Hispanics, African-Americans. It's all about Democrats. We're concerned about Democrats, and we will take an, a, a partisan advantage if we can get it, and that there is nothing illegal about it. That's the case that they're making. And, um, you know, that may be, and there is some, well, there is evidence in this new study that, again, I don't have time to get into right now, but, uh, you know, evidence that it not only, uh, you know, dampens uh, uh, the vote for minorities, particularly Hispanics, as this new study finds, but Democrats overall. And with that evidence, these states, you can bet your bottom dollar, they're going to go to court and say, no, it has nothing to do with racial minorities, has everything to do with Democrats. And we are allowed to do that. We are allowed to keep Democrats from voting in any way possible. (laughs) That's kind of what, yeah. (laughs) Because, hey, it's our First Amendment right, as uh, as Ian Milheiser points out. Um, Amazing. And then, of course, they run out the clock. And that's what we're seeing again. It's it's incredible that we're still looking at these these cases, these uh, photo ID restriction cases back from 2014 that the Supreme Court uh, had essentially blocked because they said, oh, it's too late before the election to change the rules, even though it's going to disenfranchise an untold number of voters. Uh, and here we are again in 2016. Those cases, those very same cases are now on appeal. They are moving forward at a glacial pace. And by the time they get decided, uh, we're going to be right back in the same case, whether it's the primary elections coming up, whether it's the, uh, uh, the, the general election coming up. So even if these vote suppressors lose the case again, they can still go to the Supreme Court and say, hey, give us one more election. We uh, it's too close. We can't change. It. It'll be too confusing for those poll workers if we have to, you know, let everyone vote. Uh, that's that was the argument they made. That is the argument they're likely to make again uh, in this election year. Watch for it. It's called the Purcell principle. And that's what the Supreme Court had been relying on. Anyway, uh, much more uh, ahead in the days ahead. We got a couple of uh, uh, debates coming up again. Really? Okay. Yeah. More debates coming up ahead. Uh, For now, that'll do it. We'll get out of here. My thanks to our producer, Desi Doyen, Cynthia Cohn, our booking goddess, and to my guest, constitutional law expert, Ian Milheiser. If you missed any portion of the program, download it at bradblog.com or at iTunes. And you can drop me email at bradcast at bradblog.com. Follow me on the Twitters as well. I am the TheBradBlog over there. That's it. I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world. Hey,